Jen! Jen! What is it, Steve? Colleen's bullying me again. And? What's new there? Nobody's really bad this time. He's been so hurtful. Okay, what is it this time? He says I can't do it. Do what? He says I haven't been able to do it for seven years, so I should just give up. Give what up? Trying to get it right. What is it, Steve? You know! I obviously don't. The machine company that makes Aurelia's, Black Eagles, and those very clever mythos grinders. Wolves Simonelli? Yeah, I just can't do it. Listen, Neovusimonelli? Neovusimonelli? Simonelli Neovu? Oh, Steve, is it really bullying if he's not wrong? Yes, he's a bigger boy! Hello, and welcome to episode the 47. My name is Colin Harmon. Uh, n- no, what's my name again, Jen? No, you're not Colin. You're Steve, and as you've already said, I'm Jen, and I've kind of elbowed my way into today's podcast because I really, really, really wanted to chat with our guest. Yep, no shame, no shame at all. No, but I can understand why, but also, we kind of don't like Colin. Oh, is that really why? Have you not heard? We're trying to push him out. That's the plan. Sorry, Colin, I didn't know anything about this. Well, he's not very bright, is he? You know, I think we're better off without him, to be fair. No comment. Hmm. Anyway, during the last podcast, Colin and I blundered into a minefield of intellectual research and general cleverness that I think we all know we should both stay well away from. Yeah, you guys have a tendency to do that, and then you're really just not prepared at all. My research on the subject was completely nil, but we did try and kind of bluff our way through the flavour wheel. And, of course, we like to point out the misspelling on the flavour wheel. Mm -hmm. You guys are really good at that. we are. Um, But we really like the misspelling. So, you know, if you can find fault in some clever people's work, I always think that's really good. Funny that. I wonder if everyone else takes the same approach to your work. Me? Oh, I'm perfect. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. You don't sound convinced, but we kind of started talking about the coffee lexicon, and I must admit, I didn't know a lot about it. I'd seen the book... Um, and it looked difficult to get hold of, so I didn't get it. But I'd seen quite a few bits on Twitter, so that makes me fully informed and completely knowledgeable on the topic, of course. Completely informed, yes. And we started to talk about different varietals, and Colin threw back at me what kind of research I'd like to see. Uh, And we asked why there weren't some differences between varietals as there are in wine. We started talking about different things, again off the cuff, uh, like varietal research, Um, And all that work kind of fell under the work of the world coffee research um, that's been done. Um, And we ended up talking about this a little bit afterwards. Yes, because I got an amazing email afterwards from Hannah at World Coffee Research. And she answered some of the boys' questions and she shared some of the work that they're currently doing at WCR, which is great because it gave me an opportunity to invite her to join us on the podcast this week. So I'm super excited to have her here. Hello, Hannah. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, we're absolutely delighted to have you. Now, Hannah, before we get started, because Jenny's going to probably steal this podcast, and I'm going to steal it because she's been desperate to talk to you, and she has lots of questions on the stuff. Like, honestly, I'm going to sit here and be the funny one, uh, which I do struggle with, but did I say too many stupid things in the last podcast? No, you asked a lot of good questions. You asked a lot of good questions. I, um, and I'm happy that I have answers for some of them, although not all of them, um, but you, I think one of the most important questions you asked actually was um, highlighting this new flavor 
uh, on the flavor wheel doozy, <laughs> right? And I looked, I actually looked, I went back to our sensory scientists and I looked up um, a definition for it. And it turns out it's, it's um, the aroma of moldy Victorian underpants. Do you know what happened so, when I'm using yeah. the word tomorrow when I'm cu- using cupping samples? It's just going to be doozy. Um, Ronald <laughs> will say what this means and I'll just smell, it smells like Victorian underpants to me. So, you know, I... I can't even I can't even fully take credit for that. I was at a tasting one time, a blind tasting that some folks, some friends of mine here in Portland did, and they were comparing some like really uh, awful uh, brand brand names to be unmentioned uh, conventional coffees, and it was a bunch of chefs actually. It wasn't coffee people; it was a bunch of chefs, and they they asked for flavor notes, and one of the guys was a great kind of rock and roll Portland chef. Uh, tasted a. a coffee from a very large chain and he described it as tasting like moldy victorian underpants and that's just it's always stuck with me and then when i heard the word doozy i was like that's that is the word my favorite ever descriptor that i've put on a bag and i think i've talked about this on tampa tantrum before is tastes like a strawberry dipped in cow dung but in a very good way <laughs> that coffee sold a lot as well it really was a good marketing ploy but it did taste like a strawberry dipped in cow dung. Like it really did, and it was in a really, really good way. See, there's there's so many things missing from the lexicon. I, <laughs> it's, it's just gonna have to be. Honestly, I can help you. Let me help you. Uh, another descriptor I've used for a coffee that we didn't buy. Um, so I, got, I need to do some backstory on it first. We have these places in the UK that are called working men's clubs, kind of like social club for the working man, and they've been around for a long time. They smell great. They really do. They smell amazing. Yeah. Um, since the smoking ban started in the UK, it's got a lot, lot worse as well. It's very, it's very doozy in there. Very doozy. But my descriptor was that it tasted like the carpet in a workingman club's toilet. No. <laughs> and I actually had somebody agree with me on that descriptor as well. So I can help you with all these words in the lexicon. Honestly, oh. uh, we'll talk about it afterwards. I, I am fearing for my life. <laughs> Especially because you'll need the reference sample. But we'll get to that yeah, exactly, later. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so in your email, you shared with us some exciting research that is working to address the questions that the boys raised in the last podcast. Um, there were three programs in particular you sent me some amazing information on. Could you give us a high-level overview of what those three programs are and helping how they're helping us to better understand varietals? Yeah, so... Um... So, you know, I was listening to the podcast on the bus on my way into the work, and I'm, I was always one of those kind of obnoxious kids in school who, like, always had her hand up, you know, like, pick me, pick me, I've got something to say. And so I was sitting on the bus, just, like, crawling out of my skin, like, I, I have an answer to that, <laughs> kind of. Um, so I was, yeah, I was super excited that you guys um, got back in touch. I, the, the thing, I'll, I'll just start with um, this question that you guys raised about why don't varieties taste more distinctive? Why, like, like in wine, um, people are much more easily able to distinguish coffees by varieties. And um, I, there's there's multiple overlapping um, answers to that, or at least partial answers to that. Um, and some of them dovetail with, with some projects that we're working on. So um, I'll sort of use that as my way in. Um, what, you know, one of the kind of fundamental underlying reasons why coffees varieties, why we don't know varieties as being varieties is because they actually 
aren't super distinctive. They they are <clears throat> there's fairly limited genetic diversity for arabica. I'm going to talk about arabica coffee in particular, not not so much robusta since we don't focus on that in our work. Please um, do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, so we did a study last year where we um, genetically sequenced the uh, about a thousand or things 846 arabica coffees from the Katia collection. Katia is a research center in Costa Rica, and they have um, one of the largest, what they call germplasm collections of coffee in the world. Um, germplasm just means lots of different kinds of coffee. Um, and uh, so we looked at all of them. And what we found in that particular collection, um, which is fairly representative, we think, of sort of what's out there, is that there just is not a lot of genetic diversity. There was about a 98.8% similarity across um the what they call single nucleotide uh, protein SNPs, which is basically just a fancy way of saying they're not highly differentiated, um, these different varieties. That kind of correlates with the current problems with diseases. You know that some are a bit more resistant than others, um, yeah. but the difference isn't huge unless you go to the ends of the spectrum. They're really not. And and that's why, so, you know, the, the total amount of genetic diversity that a species has available to it is kind of loosely representative of how big their toolbox is to fight disease, to fight, um, to be resilient in the face of, you know, a changing climate, that sort of thing. Um, and, and also in terms of the flavor spectrum. So, um, so this, the, the collection of coffee that we sequenced included about 400, um, varieties that were collected in Ethiopia in the 1960s by the FAO. Um, but it obviously didn't collect every wild coffee growing in a forest in Ethiopia. So there, it's presumed that there is more genetic diversity um, available in the Arabica species. It's just not uh, in wide circulation. And given the sort of size of the sample pool that we looked at, we don't think it's likely that there's this huge untapped reservoir of genetic diversity for uh, for Arabica. And the reason why um, Ethiopia is important is because it's the center of origin for Arabica. It's where it evolved. And typically you find the highest amount of genetic diversity in a plant or animal's center of origin. So, And Q have been doing this work recently, haven't they? Um, uh, Q Gardens, uh, Evan Davies, Ewan Davies. Uh, anyway, I think Q have been doing work um, with the forest coffees in Ethiopia trying to get some of that genetic history on it. Aaron, Aaron Davis, yeah. So Q, Q Botanical Gardens, they're one of the sort of premier um, organizations in the world um, going back many, of many centuries. They're um, English. In terms of Everything botanical collections, right. Um, what Aaron has really studied, he, he has looked at other species of coffee. So um, he, I can't remember, but it's something like 22 species of coffee other than Arabica and Robusta that he himself has discovered um, in the forests of Madagascar and Sudan and Ethiopia. And this is actually something that's really interesting to us. It's not something we're actively working on right now, but um, 10 years in the future, we hope we will be, um, which is looking at, can we tap some of these other species for their genetic potential? One place you see this um, sort of already existing in coffee is with um, what we call, scientists call, introgressed species. Um, so that's any species where genes from one species have, have come into another. And the uh, classic example in coffee are the catamores and sarchamores, um, which is catamore and sarchamore. They're not varieties. They're, they're sort of families of varieties, um, but they are all derived from um, one of the parents is timor hybrid, which was a natural 
hybrid between Robusta and Arabica. So the Robusta genetics in the Tamor hybrid can for um, resistance to coffee leaf rust. And so if you can use Tamor hybrid as a parent, you can get uh, leaf rust resistance into an Arabica coffee, um, which has been you know hugely important for coffee farmers given the sort of devastation that is possible uh, with the leaf rust pathogen. So um, it's, it's quite possible that Robusta holds other uh, interesting traits or, or keys that could be exploited for Arabica. It's also possible that some of these other 125 species have some interesting um, traits that could be tapped. So, um, so yeah, so it's, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of species diversity, uh, which is what Q has looked at. And then there's a variety diversity within the Arabica species. And within Arabica, the, the biggest pool of diversity exists in Ethiopia. Um, but at this point, that diversity is not uh, widely available outside of Ethiopia. So those collecting missions that happened in the 50s and 60s, where, where Katier got all of their 400 um, uh, Ethiopian varieties, they, uh, I think it was in the 90s, I could be wrong, but sometime in the last couple of decades, Ethiopia basically sort of shut down their borders to uh, the removal of biological material, um, in part because they've been fairly badly exploited. Um, you know, think geisha is a sort of classic example. Um, this really fantastic variety that, well, we now think it's fantastic, um, but it's actually been around for 80 years and um, nobody really thought it was fantastic until it, it met its perfect environment. Um, and so, um, but, you know, Ethiopia hasn't gotten any remuneration for that or, um, you know, it, it has gotten some recognition, I think, from some people, but, um, it, and coffee is not the only example. There have been lots of examples where um, relatively less developed or poor countries have had very, very valuable plant material removed without any kind of compensation. And um, it's called, uh, the technical term for that that people use is bioprospecting. You see it in the pharmaceutical industry a lot. Do I have to apologize at this point for being English? Uh, I do. Think <laughs> all I the think. Time. Th uh, there's an there's an element of that I think in all coffee. It's one of the things that I think makes coffee so interesting is the sort of fundamental ethical conundrum that it that it poses. It's it's grown in poor places and it's consumed in rich places. Um, doesn't mean that it's a bad thing or that we all have to feel guilty all the time about it, but it. it it raises some interesting questions. I spray apologies wherever I go. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> I'll allow it. I'm, I'm American, so we we, uh, we shook off that yoke. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, we did. And we did it very well. <laughs> I think that's really interesting because there's one of the things that we started to talk about that's kind of going back to the varietals and actually cataloging varietals because so often I'll go to a farm and they'll say, oh, I've... Actually, I've got a really good example. Um, I've got this story uh, from El Salvador on a farm where I know the cop producer like for ages, and he kept pointing at this tree saying, this is an SL28. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah. how do you know it's an SL28? And he's saying, well, they're SL28s. And when I look at it, it's so obviously, obviously not. And I can see that because I've seen quite a lot of those trees, and there's yeah. some obvious differences, and it wasn't an SL28. So I said, like, why do you think they are? And he said, well, 20 years ago, somebody told me they were. Yeah. And that's kind of like all they'd done to find out what variety yeah. or what that was. And listen, the coffee was super interesting, but just not in an SL28 way. And fundamentally, I mean, for most farmers, that's all they could do, right? There's no, there's no system for farmers to be able to verify 
what they've got, um, either through a sort of historical provenance record or um, in many other ways. I think there's there's some exceptions to that. No, I'll stick with the example of Geisha. Um, Price Peterson, who uh, is the sort of paterfamilias of the Hacienda Esmeralda farm, has done a lot of work with Cartier and has really gone back and looked at you know, where the ascensions came from and tracing them back and looking at the historical records. And, um, but, you know, Price is a, a, he's a, he's a very well-educated guy. He used to be an academic and he understands how to do that kind of work. Um, most coffee farmers don't. And so, um, that, that's one option. The other option is, um, to be able to have some kind of like a genetic fingerprinting and that also has not existed until, until now. Um. <laughs> so so I, I had this conversation about five days ago while I was in Ethiopia, and I was talking to the producers of Jimmer, mm-hmm. who um, they only planted the farm eight years ago, so they have a really good idea of what the varietal is. Uh, and it's rare to find a farm that's been planted so recently in Ethiopia and mm-hmm. planted in virgin soil. So I was talking to him about the varietals, and he said, the Ethiopian Coffee Institute, I think it's called, sell... Mm-hmm. Uh, plant stock, cell varietals in uh, seedling form. Mm -hmm. And um, they called it, I think it was 7310. And the varietal was Mm -hmm. like, well, what does that mean? He says, well, 1973 means the year it was developed. Uh And Mm -hmm. 10 is the identifying marker for that varietal. And um, we know where these parts are on the map because when we planted it eight years ago, we mapped it all out. Uh, We have 7310 and I think it was 7715 or 7415. And... um, He's like, well, do you know what that actually that identifying mark correlates to? And he was like, no. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot here because I like doing that to guests. Have you ever heard anything about this? Um, so not that specifically. The way um, in, in, in Ethiopia, I, I don't know a ton about a ton about Ethiopia, but um, and I've never I've never been there in person. But the way that I understand um, this to happen is that in Ethiopia, but also in other countries that have um, more robust extension services for farmers. One of the, you know, through like their national coffee federation in Colombia, it would be Santa Cafe and um, Guatemala, it would be Ana Cafe. One of the primary functions that they often serve, not always, is in um, breeding. And breeding could mean creating new crosses between, you know, two different varieties. It could mean selecting over many generations uh, a variety to have certain traits. You know, you take a Bourbon, for example, and you um, find the, some offspring that have, uh, you know, a higher yield. And then over successive generations, you only take the plants that have the highest yield. And by the time you get to six or seven or eight generations, you should have something that reliably produces a higher yield. That is, for example, where the Tequisic variety uh, in El Salvador came from. It's just a selection of Bourbon. It's not, so it's, it, it's uniform. It reproduces, um, reliably and it's distinct from non-selected bourbon so it gets to be kind of considered its own variety but it is genetically not actually different from bourbon um so so many coffee organizations provide that kind of service and then in addition some of them also will then take those uh coffees they've bred or selected and they will release them commercially for farmers and they will be to some degree or another involved in that release so um in Ethiopia, my understanding is that they do quite a lot of this um, and that they have selected something like um, currently like 37 varieties. They're all selections of wild, quote unquote wild, what we would call Ethiopian land race coffees. Um, and I think the naming convention is just something that they that's just the way they do the naming convention. They could choose to give them fancier 
names. Um, but the likelihood from, from what you're saying, or what I'm guessing, is that these are these are distinct selections that they have decided are, you know, sort of optimal for that particular area, the environment and the climate in that area, and have released to farmers in that area. That that would be my guess. Gosh, you're good. That's not fair. I really thought I was putting you on the spot and making myself look <laughs> smart then, but you made me look stupid, mate. No, that's okay. And and so I should say that, you know, that, that exists like in Central America, in Brazil and Colombia. So there are some, you know, farmers do sometimes really know what the variety is because they got it directly from the uh, the farmer organization that's doing this work, from the, the research organization that's doing this work. But many, 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 many farmers don't get their seed that way. They get it from a neighbor or they get it from, they bought, you know, they moved land or they bought a new farm and it was just whatever was there. And in those cases, which I think represent the majority of cases for smallholders at least, Farmers don't know what they have, and they don't have um, a good way to find out unless they have a you know sort of expert <laughs> who can tell them. Um, so until now, um, <laughs> which is which is where my next little pitch comes in. Um, so we are um, launching World Coffee Research is launching a genetic testing service. Um, this, I mean, really within the next couple of weeks, it should be available. Um, and it's not it's not. You can't do. You can't answer every question with it, but uh, we have a set of reference varieties. There's about a hundred of them. Um, they all come from the Katia collection. About twenty of them are what you consider like traditional varieties um, in main wide cultivation: Katura, Katwai, um, Bourbon, Tipica, and then about a, eighty more are. Um, less widely grown. Um, but what you'd be able to do is take a green coffee sample, or I believe even a leaf sample. I, I would have to verify that, but I'm pretty sure you could do it from the leaf tissue. Um, and you could submit it. And um, we have sort of fingerprints, genetic fingerprints for these hundred varieties, and we could test it against those and be able to say um, that it's a match with one of them. You could send us two different coffees, and we'd be able to tell you whether or not they were the same. Um, so if you had, you know, coffees growing in different parts of a farm, if you had, um, boy, this could create some controversy, I think, but if you had, say, a pre-shipment sample and a post-shipment sample and you wanted to know if they were really the same coffee, you could test. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily be able, like, you could, you know, someone had some crazy looking coffee growing in some corner of their farm and they sent it and it wasn't one of those hundred references that we had, we wouldn't be able to tell you what it was. Um, but we might be able to tell you what that it was closely related to something in the sample. That was what I was going to ask because we work with a farm in El Salvador again that um, it has coffee cherry, but it's obviously very, very different. So normally when you squeeze the cherry, you'll get like three drops of mucilage and that'll show that it's ready to be picked. Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's ready. Mm -hmm. uh, and this one, I've seen 14 drops come out of it. So there's an awful lot more mucilage and an awful lot more mm -hmm. flesh around the actual seed. And the coffee, like it really does taste super special. It really is different to all the other coffees on the farm and they have to hand select it out because they just don't know um, when they're picking, it's very difficult to spot, but one of the owners is really good at spotting mm -hmm. that. I'd be really interested to find out what it was related to. Um, even if you don't know what it was, it'd be really cool to find out what it is close to. Are you able to do that with the research? If we have a good enough, if we have a close enough reference. So, you know, if, if there's nothing that it's related to, we could tell you, well, this is, com this is something completely new. <laughs> um, and you said yourself, coffee trends 
uh, coffee trends. Coffee tends to come from poorer countries and don't necessarily have the resources to pay for something like this. What would it cost yeah. to find out and how would somebody go about doing that? So the sample, I think it's, I think it, the pricing is $85 per sample. So, I mean, that's going to be out of reach for a smallholder. Smallholders don't necessarily, are, are not necessarily burning to answer these questions <laughs> um, sometimes. So, um, but it's, so it's, it's something that we imagine people in different situations being interested in. So, you know, it could, it could be that you're a farm and you specialize in interesting varieties and what, you want to know more about what you've got. It could be that you're about to buy a farm and you want to understand what's already planted there, if there's coffee already there. Um, it could be that you're a buyer and you want to verify that what you're getting is what you think you're getting. Oh, for sure. Um, like sometimes could... I've had these questions about varietals yeah. and I don't know what uh, they're saying, but yeah. I'd love to know. So as a buyer, I can see lots of uses for it. Um, can yeah. we swap details now and I'll do this later? Yeah. Well, I, I'll give you the short version now, which is that you can send an... Um, just you know, start an inquiry by sending an email to info at worldcoffeeresearch.org. And then it's just a little bit of a back and forth where we need to send you the, you know, the specifications for how to send the samples and then um, explain what the report will tell you, that kind of thing. We'll put that in the show notes as well, won't we, Jane? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Oh, this is an amazing opportunity for me to ask the, one of the big questions that I had. Um, as anybody who knows me really well, I'm a little bit of a pessimist, tend to be a little bit of a Debbie Downer. And I was looking at a world in which this program is wildly successful and farmers are using it to really push their coffee prices up there because they can genetically verify what they have on their farm. But farmers who are cash strapped and already unsure about the return on coffee versus other crops, that mm -hmm. they would just see this as another hurdle, something else they couldn't afford, another certification. And so I was wondering how the producers are responding to this and if mm -hmm. they're even interested. Has anything come up so far? So, um, I mean, there's, we, there's definitely been some interest from tends to be more well-capitalized, you know, uh, differentiated type farmers. Um, I think we've also seen interest from, and also keep in mind, like, this is kind of the first time we've publicly mentioned this, so <laughs> I don't really know what the full scope of the interest is. Um, but I, I, this is like a good segue into talking about a different program that we're working on, which is, um, um, something called the um, Variety Intelligence Project and the WCR Verified. So it, the actual testing of samples is one way that you can get a clearer sort of provenance on what a coffee is. The other way is you can just verify what the coffee is from the very beginning before you even sell the seed. And so that is the sort of second part of this. Um, and it makes use of the same genetic testing, but rather than having the farmer be responsible for the testing, you have an entire seed lot be tested, and then you can verify that what's going out to the nurseries is verified. And so there's a there's a small additional like cost to the to the plant, but we're talking like a couple of cents as opposed to $85 per sample. So um, and the idea behind that is really that you you know that Farmers on the whole, smallholders too, need access to better information about um, what their varieties are and also, you know, to be sure that the plants that they're buying are healthy. It's sort of an, an overlooked element um, of the whole issue of like productivity. If you have a plant that's not healthy, or if you have a plant that is a different plant than you think it was, or if you choose a plant that is not well adapted for the environment that you're in because you don't have information about what a better plant would be, you're going to suffer in one way or another. You're either going to have a higher incidence of disease, you won't get as much productivity as you thought you were going to get or as you should be getting, um, 
and you may have sick plants. And so if we can do a better job of just helping farmers get access to healthy material that they know what it is and they know what it's supposed to do, that right there could create a significant boost in both quality and productivity. And so that's what this kind of whole program is for. The idea is that we would um, work with nurseries to verify that they're um, following some kind of best practices for plant ensuring plant health, and that we would also then be genetically uh, testing and verifying the varieties themselves. So you might have a nursery that chooses to verify some of their varieties, but not all of them. Um, and that would be fine. Um, you would know that the nursery is following good practices for healthy plants, but that certain varieties were genetically um, pure. And um, we're rolling out a pilot program of that in Central America this year um, at three nurseries, one in Guatemala, one in El Salvador, and one in Costa Rica, I think. Um, nope, sorry, one in Nicaragua. Um, and honestly, where we've had the biggest interest so far is in like coffee development projects, like like banks that are helping finance big renovation projects, they they want to, it's a big investment and there's not always like the best return on those investments. And so anything they can do to make sure that their investment is more sound, like making sure that the plants are healthy and pure, uh, they're excited about that. So that's that's one area where we think there will be a lot of interest. We also think there will just be a lot of interest from farmers and from nurseries who want, who, who can afford, you know, the extra three cents or five cents on the plant. Um, to make sure that it's going to deliver the way that it does, that it's supposed so to. So I'm going to play Nostradamus because I like playing that on this podcast. Uh, yeah. And I like to call the future of what's going to happen in coffee. And I guarantee next year you're going to have a lot of interest from baristas using this in barista competition. It's going to be the thing that people do. Like, no, I've checked this farm and honestly, I know what this is. <laughs> Um, you go to any barista competition, you're going to sell a heap of these. They'll be queuing up in a big line for it. That's so funny. I hadn't thought of that. We'll have to put it in the marketing materials. Just me, it's going to work. That will be the next thing. It really, really is. Um, okay, I want to move it on, and uh, I want to kind of move along to the oh, next generation a, next generation F1 hybrids that you've been doing the research on. Mm-hmm. I'm particularly interested in these F1 hybrids because I came third in the UK Brewers' Cup using a hybrid and a geisha together. Oh, do you know? What was the hybrid? Do you know? Oh, I can't remember. Oh, oh it's, slammed. Um, oh, <laughs> come on, it was 12 months ago. I've worked with many coffee since then. Someone will tell me about it. We can put that in the show notes as well, can't we, Jen? But honestly, I have a lot of interest in F1 hybrids, um, particularly the quality side of it. But mm-hmm. it means it's one thing that concerns me when I see a push towards these varietals, mm-hmm. very yield-driven, very pest-resistant driven. But it's... Like, what about the impact on the cup? I mean, it's something that we um, yep. we should really be looking at. As an organization, is that something that's been important as well as strong and healthy? Yes. Yes. So I'm going to... Um... I'm going to give you a quick history lesson I love history <laughs> um, because I think actually at this point, everyone is interested in quality. The problem is, okay, let me back up and say one thing first. So the first thing is if you don't focus on disease resistance and productivity, you're as a, as a coffee breeder, you're, you're being irresponsible because that is fundamentally how coffee farmers either are able to survive or not. If, if all their plants are wiped out by disease, they're gone, they're done for. And as we're seeing in parts of Central America, when that happens in a big enough way, you lose coffee production areas that don't come back. So um, El Salvador is really, really struggling. Um, A lot of coffee farms are being 
turned over to other crops. And ultimately that hurts the whole industry. So, so there's that. And then there's also productivity. The, the most direct way that farmers make their money is on the weight of their coffee. So the more coffee they produce, the more um, profitable they're able to be, assuming they have good practices and are able to keep their costs of production in line, which is like a whole separate conversation. <laughs> um, but, but if, if you completely ignore those two things, you're, um, you're just, um, you have, you have to take those two things into consideration. Historically, quality was a complete afterthought. Um, and what would usually happen in a coffee breeding program is you would, let's say you're in a particular region, you know, that there's rust. Okay. We need to create a new rust resistant variety. You go out and you figure out how to do that. You maybe get, you know, 10 options that look like they're pretty good. They're sort of closely related um, lines. And then at the very, very end, you say, well, this one tastes the best. So this is the one we're going to release commercially to farmers. It was not a primary consideration. Um, and the other thing you have to understand about traditional breeding is it takes 20 to 30 years. So because it takes all these successive generations to make sure that you can produce a stable variety that will reproduce true to type over every generation. So when the market for coffee started shifting and where you want to put the shift is a little bit up to you, it could be in the late seventies, early eighties, or in the two thousands, but really accelerating towards a focus on quality in the early two thousands, most of the varieties that were in development or had been released had started being developed 20 to 30 years before when people didn't really care about quality or the, the signal for quality was, a, it was at a much lower volume. Um, there's a, a good example of this is a variety called Costa Rica 95, which is a, I believe a catamore. So it has Katura as one parent and Tamor hybrid as another. Um, I think that's right. Um, and, um, Sorry, I was going to try to look that up to make sure I'm, I'm, not, I'm not wrong, and I just totally lost my momentum. Um, Costa Rica 95 is a catamore. Um, but quality was just completely off the table. It really wasn't a consideration. Um, this was a variety that one of our coffee breeders named Benoit Bertrand helped develop in the, in the early 90s. Um, and when it was released, and when the first sort of production, commercial production came, you know, three years later, um, buyers were like, <laughs> this is terrible. This is horrible. And all these farmers had renovated and replaced um, uh, Katura and other varieties with it. And so um, it was essentially considered a big failure, but it was, it was a success in, to the extent that it was a really good learning experience for coffee breeders that, um, that they really had to be talking to the market. They really had to be talking to the industry to understand what it wanted. Farmers in general they just, they want to give buyers what buyers want. The problem is they don't always know what that is. And there's not always good um, connectivity. There's not a good two-way street all the time. Um, Quite often the buyers just don't know what they want. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. I've got an interesting thing. It's kind of like a, a tiny anecdote again about breeding and yeah. how it can misfire. We work with a producer in Nicaragua who found a yellow pacamara tree. And in the first set of seedlings they planted, from the yellow pacamara, they were really excited. And then all of a sudden they started harvesting mm -hmm. and there was like 80% produced red and 20% produced yellow. Um, and the breeding can fire in different ways, can't it? I mean, you can actually end up with very different results as something is evolving and mutating like that. So what developing and, and like 
are you doing when development can take so long um, to get enough seed stock, mm -hmm. enough seedling stock to produce something that it might be or you might want, or it may not be what you actually started with in the beginning because of all of these misfirings. Um, when one part can be dominant over the other one? Yeah, yeah. In in breeding, that's typically called segregating. So when the children don't produce like the parents, it's called segregating. And this is actually really relevant for F1 hybrids. So um, so I, we should probably define what that means. <laughs> so F, F1 is actually a very generic term that just means first generation. So... Um, but what, what we're talking about right now when we're talking about F1s is a sort of specific thing, which is um, making a hybrid cross between two different varieties where the first generation, the, so the first offspring, the first babies, the baby coffee, has some of the best qualities of both the mother and the father. And this is the technique that really like catapulted the green revolution in agriculture in the 1960s, this is what raised corn yields globally by like 80, you know, a couple hundred percent. Um, this this technique of, of doing F1 hybrids. The problem with it is that when you when you do this, the um, for reasons I think that are not well understood, um, you lower the ability for the children. The children will not carry forward the traits into their successive generations. So you create the, you take the two parents, you create the baby. It has really, it performs really well. If you were to take the seed from the baby and plant it, it would segregate all over the place. So that the children or the grandchildren of the original, some would have the traits of the mom, some would have the traits of the dad, but they wouldn't be combined together anymore. So what this means practically for farmers is that um, you can't really sow F1 you can't really get children of F1 from seeds, which is a lot of farmers collect their own seed and replant it, at, and then it costs nothing for them. They don't have to go to the nursery. Um, for F1 hybrids, you have to go to the nursery and buy a new baby plant every time. So the um, so the thing about F1s is that um, the the other thing about them is that in order to to create the F1s at a large scale, you you have to it. It's technologically intensive, and because there's only there's a couple of techniques, one of them is called somatic embryogenesis, um, and they're sort of expensive, and they're sort of um, uh, like you kind of need like a lab to do it. And so one of the things that WCR has been working on, but also um, a private company called Ecom um, and some other institutions, coffee institutions around the world, is working on technology to bring to scale that up and bring the cost down. About ten years ago, to produce an F1 hybrid cost about like a dollar a plant, 70 cents to a dollar a plant. And it's already half of that, but it's still more than if you were to go to a nursery and buy seed. Um, and so to bring that cost down is something that we are, um, you know, it, it's sort of essential for that um, to, to enter into kind of wide, for those kinds of plants to enter into widespread use. Um, the first ones that were developed were it was, it was not that long ago. They started being worked on in the, I think, early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. And even though it shortens the amount of time that it takes to breed the coffee, um, you still have to test them and make sure they're not, um, that they're going to work in a particular area. So the first ones that were really released um, in Central America, at least, were like around 2000, I think 2005 was the very first, and then 2010 we saw more. So those those plants are just starting to produce fruit very recently. So these are very new varieties, and um, they're not really well known because there are these limitations on how many of them can be re reproduced. They're not in super widespread circulation, um, but it's it's 
something that we think it's sort of a, a philosophy of breeding that we think is really worth exploring um, in part because when you do this, um, there's this sort of uh, thing that happens when you take two parents that are genetically distant. So it's not the same variety, right? There's um, if, it, if you're taking the same variety, you're doing just the sort of traditional um, kind of selective type breeding. If you're taking two varieties that are distant, so they're genetically distant, and you cross them, there's a property in plant breeding called heterosis um, or hybrid vigor, which basically says, not in all cases, but in many, many cases, that the offspring of two genetically dis distant parents will be more vigorous. They will produce, they'll be vegetatively more vigorous and more important for coffee farming, they'll be, they'll produce more fruit. And so some of these early um, F1 hybrids were getting in the cup quality assessments that they were doing, which maybe would not meet <laughs> the standards of some super specialty folks, but they were getting, you know, as good or better um, cup scores than Katura. Katura is often used as a baseline in Central America. Um, and they were getting between 20 and 250% more fruit. So on, on average, they were getting 50%, 30, 40 to 50% more fruit. But there were some cases where they were getting a lot more. And then interestingly, they were also, in a couple of cases, um, the, the bump in productivity was higher for coffee grown in shade than it was for coffee grown in sun, which, has, which is important because um, shade, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about shade coffee. Um, it, you know, sort of like this thing for a while, like bird-friendly coffee, you know, back when people cared about sustainability in coffee. Um, and then it sort of faded from view, but because um, shade coffee really has a lot of potential positive benefits around climate change and also around quality, I think it's something we're going to be hearing more about. And so getting those sort of boosts in the shade is also really, um, really interesting. So I, we're doing, uh, we're going to be testing a whole bunch of these um, varieties. We're going to be running a whole bunch of these varieties through the sensory lexicon that we published last week. Um, in, over the course of the spring and doing some quality assessments of them. And I'm really curious because I've, you know, I hear about these varieties from our breeders and I've seen some of them, but I've never tasted any of them. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll have, I, I don't know if we will, but I'm hoping we'll have like enough extra of some of these coffees that we can do a couple like kind of fun industry cuppings, like maybe at SCAE in Dublin. Me, me, pick me. Yeah, pick yeah, me, right? Me, I know, me, I know. Me, me, me. I know, it'd be so fun. So it'd be so fun. fun. So um, yeah, and just to give you like, I'm just I keep saying these words like varieties. Um, some of the names of some of these are like Centro America is one, also called by its breeders code H1, Millennio, Mundo Maya, H3, Cassiopeia, Eva Luna, and Nayarita are in Central America the ones that we're going to be looking at. Um, and they they all are. Let's see. Um, they. So, so these are ones that exist already. They, they were developed, um, most of these, either by a consortium that included Promo Cafe, which is like the regional coffee organization for Central America, CIRAD, which is a French coffee re uh, research institution that has coffee, and um, Cartier, the, uh, the, the research center in Costa Rica that has the germplasm collection. So they provided these wild Ethiopian lines for one of the crosses, and then um, they used other coffees for the other cross. In some cases, they used a, a, like a Catamore. In some cases, they used Keturah. Um, 
so the idea was um, for many of these, use a parent that has like important trait like rust resistance, and then use a wild Ethiopian type that we think might confer some good quality traits. Um, so these ones are ones that already exist and they've been tested, field tested in Central America. We are ourselves currently working on um, a kind of next generation uh, of the same. So um, we just made 50 experimental crosses on a farm in Costa Rica uh, using coffees from, again, same idea. It's like pick, depending on what your target is, is it is it quality and will grow well at high altitude in the shade or is it produce a lot of coffee and have rust resistance? Um, so we have a couple different targets, um, but we're using coffees from that Cartier collection to try out some experimental crosses. So we just got the the, the baby, the cherry. So we, we had the mom and the dad and we, we put the pollen from one onto the flower of the other and the cherries produced and we just uh, picked the cherries and we're going to be germinating the seeds to grow them into these baby plants um, over the next year or two. And so we should see, hopefully, if any of them do well. Um, and the thing that is different about, um, I think, what we're doing, but also what other breeders are starting to really pay attention to is putting a more primary focus on quality. So um, this is where the, the sensory lexicon comes in. Um, this is a tool. Yeah, you did it again. Honestly, everything you do to the sensory lexicon, Jenny's like literally jumping out of a seat and I've got a question I want to ask you for that, so don't mention the lexicon. Well, I'll say, I'll say one brief thing and then we can, we can go back and forward and jump around. Um, but the, what's cool about the having the lexicon is that it gives us a better language for talking to breeders about, about coffee quality, right? So in the past, when, they've, when breeders have done quality assessments and it's been this kind of semi-afterthought, there, it was like, what were they even looking at? They weren't, you know, you'd often say like, the most kind of granular that I have seen in a lot of these reports is, well, this one's more acidic than this one. Um, and which is good, that's a good thing to know. But this gives us a, a better kind of broad vocabulary for looking at a few different really key quality traits. And it's not going to be when we're working on developing a new a new hybrid and testing it, we're not going to be looking at all 110 attributes that are in there. We're going to be picking out the ones that are sort of the most important, but um, it just, it just gives a, a sort of shared language for us all to be speaking. And I think that's one of the things that's been um, missing in the past is that breeders were sort of speaking one language, farmers were kind of sort of speaking another, and coffee buyers were sort of speaking another. Um, and so it was very hard for uh for there to be a way to talk to each other, to share information and give each other feedback. Because they didn't have the same language. So my biggest concern is one that I've tasted a lot of F1 hybrids that are out there. And like some of them, I really liked. Some of them, I haven't. And I thought that was good, that wasn't so good. Uh, and I know mm -hmm. that Nick Cho is gonna go crazy at this point because mm -hmm. I'm gonna mention the wine thing. but. You can't help but talk about it when it comes to talking about different coffee varietals, even if it's not the perfect place for us to be. But it's a reference that like everybody gets. But like tasting the Chardonnay from one place and tasting the Chardonnay from another place tastes completely different, even though they have those similar properties. But they're really different. Um, and when we're looking at the quality side of it, what are you doing in these experiments to overcome these potential like false negatives? Um, 
You know, like for instance, that just wasn't the right place for that hybrid, or that place was never going to do great coffee. Uh, if you look at the example of geisha, we kind of know that mm -hmm. if you grow geisha below yeah. 1500 meters, it tastes like dishwater. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're tasting it uh, above that, it could be really good. So what happens if you're testing them all at a hundred, you know, yeah. like a thousand meters, and it's like geisha, and we get these terrible well, tasting varietals that well, are false negatives. Uh, part of that is backing up and saying that's true of almost every variety, right? So I mean, altitude—it's it's sort of a proxy, but it's a good—it's it's a good proxy for temperature. Um, and this is like why climate change people should be who care about coffee quality should be really worried about it because. Um, there are some very specific effects that um, too high temperatures or, or temperatures that swing too much have on the development of good flavors and sugars and, and volatiles. Well, yeah, for sure, the maturation of the fruit um, is super important. Right. We know that, you know, higher it is, the slower that maturation is. Right. And uh, how important that is with varietals. Yeah. As well as such an important thing that, like, everything changes as that fruit matures and changes the way that the coffee tea coffee tastes and can be in a very different way i mean it's it's kind of axiomatic i mean i think there there i'm perhaps there are some exceptions and you know your microclimate kind of matters that's that's why i say altitude is a proxy it, it's not always that you have to be above x number of meters but generally you know the, the microclimate or the altitude that gives you that slow maturation is going to give you the best quality for that variety and this was this was actually something that came up in the whole um Katura versus castillo debate until the Colombian government incentivized, you know, really heavily incentivized um, renovation of Colombian coffee farms with Castillo, most of the Castillo that was being grown in the country was being grown at lower altitudes. When some of the higher altitude farms started, and so people developed an opinion of it that was very low um, of the taste. When some of the higher altitude farms in better regions, like in Mourinho, started growing it, uh, it turned out in some places, that it could taste a lot better than people thought, um, and so I think this is this is something that um, it's it's important, right? Because um, I, Michael Sheridan from Catholic Relief Services, who ran that Castillo Columbia Sensory Trial, looking at Castillo versus Couture, I think he, he he did a great job of documenting it. If you haven't looked at the the blog posts about it and watched his videos about it, I recommend that you do. But it raises these really important questions about what kind of risk are we putting farmers at. Um, by by sort of saying out of hand, oh, this one variety that is disease resistant and produces a lot of coffee tastes terrible and I'm never going to buy it without having tasted it under its best possible conditions. That is uh, potentially quite dangerous. I, mean, I don't know if dangerous is too strong a word. I'm going to go ahead and use it. <laughs> put myself on it. But potentially quite dangerous for farmers to make those kinds of uninformed um, opinions. Or, I mean, they're not uninformed. They're informed by the experiences that you've had. It's just that you've not had all possible experiences. And of course, none of us can. So um, in answer to that, I mean, I don't think we can ever perfectly answer all of the, these questions in part because it's just, it would cost an unlimited amount of money that, <laughs> that nobody has to, to test everything under ideal conditions. But um, the other thing that's kind of um, interesting to note is a lot of these coffee research stations where breeding has typically been done are not at high altitude. They're at like um, Katia in Costa Rica is at like 600 meters. And so if that's the condition under which you're doing your testing, you're not, you're not going to get accurate quality results. So that's at least something that we can control as we're, as we're doing these sorts of tests, we are um, 
trying to make sure that they're in, you know, appropriate locations. Um, but probably it's true that, that some of these varieties are, not all of these varieties are or should be um, targeted as quality, high quality stuff, because not all farmers live at high altitude and can produce um, amazing coffee. It's, that's just a reality. There's however many hundred million coffee farmers in the world, not all of them are going to be able to produce amazing coffee and they need varieties that at least get the job done, that, that at least get them the income that they need um, to survive. And that's important to remember too. So it, it's sort of holding both. Um, but I think there is potential that is untapped for creating higher quality coffees that have some of these agronomic ta- um, traits that are going to, that are really important for, for, for farmers. So I want to shift the conversation back a little bit because it's come up a few times already, as Steve has already pointed out, and I've been jumping out of my chair to talk about it quite literally, um, the lexicon. So you guys have written a really thorough blog series on the development of it and how it came about. And there's been a lot of other writing online about it too, but for anybody who hasn't necessarily read those things yet, (laughs) hint, hint, they will be in the line notes later. Can you give sort of like a a five cent background on the project for people who haven't read it? So, okay. So the most important thing to know about the lexicon from my perspective, (laughs) is that it was not developed for the coffee industry. Like, if you don't understand that to begin with, it's going to be a confusing document for you. Um, So the reason we developed the lexicon was, and I touched on this earlier, that we needed a better tool for evaluating uh, what coffee tastes and smells like that could could be used in research. Um, There's a great... um, paper uh, that one of our coffee breeders wrote a couple of years ago, looking at um, the impact of climate, of of altitude and and over average temperature on the development of certain kinds of um, chemical traits in coffee, so sugars and volatiles, and then correlated those specifically back to certain flavors that were either good or bad. Um, And that is the kind of research, the the ability to evaluate sort of growing conditions, correlate that to the chemistry in coffee, correlate that to specific flavors that we haven't really been able to do because we didn't have the language for it. Um, we, had some, we had some sort of broad language, you know, sweet or, or acid, um, but we're getting more fine-tuned on that and, and can adopt a common language. Um, the other thing that we couldn't do was measure those. So we could say it's got high acidity, but what does that mean? It, you would have to only ever you could only ever do it in relation to something else. You could say it's got more acidity than Katura, but you couldn't say it's got acidity of blank. So one of the things that the lexicon allows us to do is to actually uh, give a sort of essentially a numerical score to the intensity of a flavor or aroma in a given coffee sample, um, and we use this a fifteen point scale, which is standard in sensory descriptive analysis, which is the the sort of kind of uh, approach that the lexicon is grounded in. So so that that's why we developed it. We developed it because we needed a tool because we care about quality and we think it's essential to the future of, of coffee. Um, if, if, you're, if you're ignoring quality, you are doomed. <laughs> I mean, it's just where the future is. Um, so, um, and, and it's essential to farmer livelihoods too. So um, because coffee, because quality is essential um, and, and we need to focus on it in our research, we needed a tool that would allow us to do that in a good way. The other thing that's really key about, about the lexicon is that if it's used um, in the way that it's supposed to be, and I'll explain that in a minute, um, it's also replicable, which means a sensory analyst in one place in one time using the tool 
following the proper procedure and a sensory analyst in another place in another time tasting the same coffee should be able to give the exact same scores. And that is something that existing evaluation tools in coffee are sort of famously bad at. Um, Do you know, we were talking and, about this earlier. I spent uh, a lot of time on the SCAA cupping sheet during the taste of harvest in Ethiopia mm-hmm. and watching some cuppers with their scoring is like in a really narrow brand of like 82 to 86. 82 being awful, 86 being something they like, mm-hmm. just so they could correlate. Um, it's kind of like trying to paint a, a very delicate picture with a paint roller and <laughs> just, you know, using your fingers it's just such a terrible tool for evaluation oh oh god i just said that out loud i'm gonna get no well it's it's a really good tool for a certain kind of evaluation it's fast right so if i mean if you're a buyer and you've got you're going through a bunch of samples and you you're trying to sort out you know the stuff that's essentially defective from what's not it's a good it's a good tool it's just not good for what we needed to do so there's a the, the um a uh, scientist, a guy named Ed Chambers uh, at Kansas State University who developed the lexicon for us, he did a, a little, he published a paper in 2014 that looked at, um, he had some cupper, I think it was four cuppers, um, pretty highly trained folks, cup some Colombian coffee samples, I think it was four coffees, four cuppers, and together they came up with 54 descriptors to describe those four coffees. They only, they only overlapped in four cases. I mean, it's just not, um, you can't get scientific validity, you can't get statistical significance scores out of that kind of variation. So, um, so, and that's what we need. So that's why we developed it. So you developed this to evaluate the research specifically. How many people are actually trained to do that? And then why publish it so every idiot can buy it or download it and get it as uh, <laughs> a tool to evaluate their coffee incorrectly? Um, this is what yeah. I've seen on Twitter that I've got this book, I'm going to have yeah. this kind of flavors and I'm going to use it. And everybody went, mm, kind of, what do I do now? What? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. It's a great point. Um, so first of all, I'll just correct. If you don't even have to buy it, it's free. <laughs> it's, it's free for download for anybody who wants to go take a look at it. So l- let me first address the like, what does it mean to be trained to use the lexicon? So the, I, I mentioned the sort of approach that the lexicon is a tool for is called sensory descriptive analysis. Um, and what that typically means is that when you have a, a trained sensory panel, usually six to seven folks um, who are sensory scientists and they're not coffee specific sensory type, at least at this point in time, there are no people that are specifically only coffee sensory scientists um, that I know of um, in the world. They typically w- would work on a wide range of, of foods and, and beverages. Um, and this is these kinds of lexicons exist for lots of other foods. Um, there's ones for wine. There's ones for, I found one for pizza crust. I found one for cat litter. Cat litter. Um, there's a new yeah, mm-hmm. I could use. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very textural, the cat litter. So um, uh, in, in any case, the idea is you have this uh, group of people. They're highly trained sensory scientists. They they uh, familiarize themselves with a particular lexicon, in this case, coffee, and that might, they might take a couple of months, um, as a panel together to sort of, um, slowly over time become familiar with the references and, uh, with the attributes and with coffees. And then, and then they're considered a trained panel and they can evaluate 
uh, coffees. Right now, there's only two in the U.S., one at Kansas State University, one at Texas A&M University. Um, and so if we, for our research, um, are wanting to have a bunch of coffee samples evaluated, um, like we are going to do with uh, these varieties from Central America, I think we're testing about 28 varieties, um, we will submit them to one of these two panels. So I'm super interested in that part because you've got these panels and non-currently work in the coffee industry uh, that are trained to use this. Although I'm sure that someone will come yeah, out of the woodwork right. and say, oh, mm -hmm. I can do that. But I mean, like, is there a plan or interest from WCR to offer this training to people and allow them to apply the lexicon to their businesses? I know you're saying basically it's mm -hmm. for scientists, but I'm sure yeah. there is some way of using this really cool tool in buying, roasting, and coffee shops? There definitely is. There definitely is. So, so yeah, it's a great question. So um, I think the, the, we knew that there would be interest from the industry in sort of seeing this tool, and we, and we very much want the industry to, to know what it is and, and to ideally adopt the language in it, meaning not necessarily the whole process, the whole, you know, being a fully trained sensory panelist, but this idea that there's these um, identifiable flavors and aromas in coffee, that there are 110 of them. We, th we know that that list will grow over time, but right now there are 110, and that this is a language that we can collectively begin to try to use to get on the same page about, about coffee. And that is the reason why SCAA decided to adopt it for their flavor reel. I think we're the already there, they did... we? We agreed that there are 111 because we are definitely going to put the coffee Doos from a gents' toilet. It's true, right, doozy, there, yeah. We? <laughs> You're so scale. right. So right. So um, so yeah. I mean, the minute SCAA adopted it to be the basis of their new flavor wheel, that sort of catapulted it into an, into a different place um, in in the industry, and sort of it, it was sort of an official stamp of approval in some ways of saying like, yep, this is relevant for industry. Um, we think it's relevant for industry for lots of ways. Um, the analogy, the best analogy I can think of is, you know, cupping is a very specific process a very specific it has very specific steps and and tools and you know to really be a, a you know properly trained cupper you have to go through a you know q grading and um but lots of people use cupping in their cafes to talk to customers about flavor so it, there's a spectrum there's there's the sort of formal process but then there's the fact that you can adapt it for other uses that are relevant and i think that's where the the lexicon sits right now there's a formal kind of process that we will use for it doesn't mean other people can't use it in their own ways. Um, and that is why we wanted to release it because we think it has a lot of relevance for people. Um, one, one, so other than the just kind of language, trying to establish a kind of uh, a unified language for coffee flavors and aromas, um, there's lots of practical things that people can do with it um, because it gives these reference uh examples they're sort of like little little recipes so let's say uh, blueberry as an example so you're you're trying to evaluate does your coffee have blueberry in it the reference for that is a particular brand of canned blueberries called organ brand canned blueberries so if you could get a hold of this reference you could um, use it as a essentially a kind of calibration tool to say okay this is when we're talking about blueberry we're this is the what we're talking about, this particular flavor. Um, and then it gives you an intensity score for that reference. So I think the, the canned stuff is like a seven or four on a 15 point scale. So if you were tasting a coffee against it, you could say, oh, well, this is less than or more than, um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be able to, the way a, a trained sensory panelist would be able to say like, oh, that's a 5.5. But you could say like, well, it's probably 
two-ish. <laughs> um, okay, so that's great. Because this is something that's really fascinating to me. Because we all sort of understand that we're not ever really going to be able to use this as a sensory scientist do. And yes, it is applicable mm-hmm. in some ways. But as you said, like there's a pretty big barrier to industry use if you're outside of the U.S. Um, is there any plan to expand the lexicon to include more yes. global references? Yes, right now. now. I, like you and I had this conversation earlier. Um, and I'll just kind of let everyone in on the basic answer to this. Yes. Um, but the reason that the, the lexicon only uses the U.S. references right now is because that's where the majority of the research is being done. It's where the evaluation is taking place and it makes the references mm-hmm. readily available to the to the researchers. Did I understand that correctly? Yes, 100%. And, and also just because we had, we were both trying to be expedient and um, uh, frugal, <laughs> for lack of a better term. So like creating a global set of wherever all the references are calibrated against each other is just a much bigger project it would take a lot longer and it would cost a lot more. Um, and since we're funded by largely the coffee industry by coffee roasters. I think there was some interest in like, we just got to get this done. (laughs) Um, So, but yeah, it's a great question. So we don't have a, I can't say like, yes, in April, we will have the, this for this country and the, the, um, but this is something that's very much on our radar. Um, I think the ideal situation for us is that we'd be able to partner with um, organizations like, especially coffee association of blank, um, to, uh, work with, um, maybe a, a sensory scientist within that country and also some sort of top, uh, cuppers. That's, that's how we did it in the U S we had the sensory scientists doing the kind of formal development of the lexicon and doing the, um, intensity scores, but the cuppers were kind of keeping everything on track and making sure it was like, Oh yes, this makes sense. This is how we understand and talk about coffee. Um, so a process like that, and then you have the, the, the scientists who developed it or one of the ones from the other trained panel go out and sort of identify, okay, which are the attributes that can be readily translated just like that, which are the ones that require some deeper digging into, you know, the kind of definition of the, of the term, because not all cultures have the same understanding of what a flavor is. Um, and once you've sorted that out, then you locate the references that are available in that country and you assign the intensity scores and you make sure that they're, you know, essentially equivalent to or, or with, um, or, you know, work with the ones, uh, the base ones in the U.S. Um, I will say that the, the ideal scenario for this whole thing, um, in terms of references, you have two kinds. One is a physical reference that's like grocery store ingredients. And one is a chemical reference that's like uh, Linné kits. So the ideal is that you would have chemical references because then everybody can get them and it's not about what's in the grocery store. Um, And many, many of the references in the lexicon are chemical references. They're either Linné kits or they're like, you know, citric acid powder that you dissolve in water. Um, uh, We hope there will be more. And there's actually, I believe, a number of companies who are working on this in coffee right now, which is awesome. And as those products come to market, we will be evaluating them and making sure that they um, seeing if they can be added as references. Um, so that's, there's, there's that. And then there's the kind of country by country or region by region version. Um, and I think, um, we're very open to facilitating that process and making it white, opening it up and making it more accessible, um, by making the ingredients themselves more accessible. And we are, we're not going to, I don't think ever get into the territory of like training people to become, sensory panelists um we've done a couple of like demos of how this works with the the sensory scientists that have developed it 
we're looking at doing one at CoLab in Antwerp. Uh, we may be also doing one um, in conjunction with SCAE. So there might be some opportunities for folks um, in Europe to to play around with it and and get a kind of hands-on feel for it. Um, I think also maybe inevitably because the SCAA has sort of adopted this as the basis for their flavor wheel, there will be some attention to how this kind of analysis can be incorporated into some of their education programs and training. I just don't know what that looks like yet. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, we're, yeah, we, I, our sort of philosophy in general, I feel like right, I'm learning anyway. I've only actually been in this job for about six months is like, we try not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. <laughs> and so if, you know, if we had just, if we had waited to make it, um, perfect and truly global, it probably would be five years before anybody, before it saw the light of day. I honestly think yeah. that you have partnered with the Right Specialty Coffee Association as well. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, Hannah, but there's an aggressive takeover. Um, the SCAE is <laughs> taken over by the SCAA, and uh, eventually the SCAE will just be squashed. Yeah. Um, so you'll be all good. You'll be the right partner. <laughs> um, but back to the lexicon uh, and the terminology in it. I think we all agree at this instant that the gents toilets of a working men club needs to be in that lexicon. It's a really obvious <laughs> thing that you've missed. It's not your fault. I'm not going to blame you. I think it's a little big to fit on the wheel, Steve. Okay, so say for instance we all agree that it should be added to the wheel. And we do, of course, all agree here. We should just come up with an acronym. But mm-hmm. how are you adding new things to the lexicon? Is there anybody considering yeah, that? I mean, definitely. who decides that there should be 110? And who was stupid enough to miss out the yeah, 11? Yeah, very good question. Yeah, so so yes, it will it will grow. I mean, it's kind of. Uh, I mean, you, you can hear it in the title, lexicon, right? It, it's a it's like a dictionary, and the same way that language, you know, spoken language evolves and changes over time, this will evolve and change over time. Um, so, you know, one example of of a thing that's that's, I think, clearly missing is potato as a flavor. Um, we know it exists in coffee, generally considered to be a bad thing. Um, we tested, we used 105 coffees to generate this thing. And so basically what the, the folks who created this, which is the sensory science lab at Kansas State University, they sat down with all these coffees. They sat down with all the other coffee lexicons that have been created or any kind of sensory research on coffee and did a big a literature review. And then, and then they sat down with these coffees and they said, okay, here's a kind of huge possible list of flavors. And they went through the samples and they saw what is actually there, what is actually in these coffees. Um, and that is how the list was generated. Um, they didn't test. They didn't taste every single coffee on earth. <laughs> they could not possibly have. Um, they did taste some coffees from Rwanda and Burundi. They clearly didn't taste any that had potato defect. Um, in part, that's probably because they only tested coffees that had come to market. So they didn't taste anything that had been rejected because. Um, and and so it's it's quite quite possible that um, you know as we get samples of coffees that have these flavors that we will expand it's not just possible it's it's what will happen um, now that's interesting because one of my biggest things talked about uh, when talking about the new flavor wheel was the lack of defects on there and i think we're only using stuff that's gone into the market it really means that you're not really going to get any defect taste yeah well so i will say though that the it's hard to talk about this stuff in a clear way. Um, and I'm not, I've never been a coffee buyer or a Q grader or, um, so my knowledge of coffee defects is sort of, uh, tangential. Um, but what I will say is many, many of the flavors that are associated with defects are on the wheel. So 
there were coffees that we tasted that had that were moldy, that ta- had a moldy taste, had an over fermented taste, had a medicinal taste, um, had a sk- skunky as one of the flavors on there. So, <laughs> well, what's gone is this specific part of the of the poster that called out defects and tried to assign essentially reasons for their existence. So. Um, it's got the flavors, most of them, we know potatoes missing, um, but it doesn't try to assign a cause to them. Um, and, in, and in part that's because, um, it, I mean, the whole, the purpose of the lexicon is to be descriptive, not to be um, judgmental. <laughs> we're not, we're not trying to explain why a certain flavor exists or to call them bad or good. Um, and part of that is because it's just sort of irrelevant for the, the use that we have for it. Um, but part of it is also that what is bad or good, it depends on your point of view. It depends on what kind of a coffee company you are and, and what kinds of coffees you're interested in buying. It depends on what culture you're from. Um, so, you know, the presence of some off, you know, quote unquote off flavors for some people might make it a bad coffee and for other people might make it a fine coffee or a passable coffee. So, um, you know, I, I think we are missing flavor, some key flavors that would be considered defects, but we're not trying to, um, explain them all. So I, I do imagine that at some point it, it may expand to looking at some um, like defective coffee samples. Um, the other thing that it potentially could expand to is looking at Robustas. Um, we don't, for, for research, this is actually, you know, a very interesting area that hasn't been super much explored. In, in coffee breeding, we've looked at bringing Robusta genetics into Arabica for that coffee leaf rust resistance, we haven't looked at the opposite. It, would it would it be possible to breed uh, robusta coffees that taste as good as arabicas? Don't know. That would be a really interesting question to answer, and it gets harder to grow coffee up mountains, and and it gets yeah. you know we're going to need to look at places with lower altitudes, Brazil, Vietnam, that already grow yeah. a lot of robusta coffee. Um, if we get something that really tasted good there, then we'd actually improve the coffee quality a hundredfold for the whole industry kind of getting out of this specialty niche and making coffee better for everybody yeah i mean like we talked about with you know temperatures and altitude you're probably never going to get the beautiful coffees at 600 meters but could you get something that's a lot better than what you get now it's very possible so um so it will definitely evolve um and expand over time um there's there's a process if you read the introduction to the lexicon um, you can see it um if you think that there is a flavor that's missing you can submit a coffee sample to us that you think has that flavor and the process is that it goes back to one of these trained sensory panels and they evaluate the sample to see if it's there and some you know sometimes what happens is that people um people think of something as having a certain flavor but what it really kind of is is like two or three other flavors mashing together um and and this is like it's notorious in any kind of sensory science like our perception is so especially of smell is so tied up in memory that it's very very difficult to delineate sometimes the difference between something that's there or not there especially if you associate it that way so um and i i mean we're not immune from that um but at least you know the the folks that are doing these evaluations are um as highly trained as it's possible to be given the state of science at the moment (laughs) 
I know I say this a lot, but this podcast has truly been incredibly fascinating. Um, I know we've been on over an hour and I'm breaking my own rules here and taking up quite a bit of your time. Uh, I have so many more questions. We didn't even break the surface of what I had, but um, we'll just have to wait until hopefully we have either you or someone from WCR coming to join us in Antwerp. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's it's really been my pleasure. And I should I should say, I hope... I think, I hope we're going to have a new website launching next week. So um, it should be a lot easier, hopefully, <laughs> if I've done my job to uh, to get um, a feel for kind of what we're all about. We, we touched on a lot of the the tentacles of our programs, but uh, there's, oh, there's a lot more. So <laughs> I have so enjoyed this one as well. There has been like all kinds of stuff that I didn't think was happening or going on. And I'm sure this is going to be a super, super exciting listen. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, for uh, spending this time with us and I guess what's all that's left to do now is uh, over and out yeah over and out thanks for listening to this podcast it's proudly brought to you by Nuova Simonelli